Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? Uh, we're doing mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino. I guess this is our first Tarantino, eh, Tim? Right? Yeah. Yeah, it just occurred to me, too, that like somehow we really haven't dug in. We've had some of his movies on polls before, but... Uh, you know, uh, sorry, sorry to tell you, Quentin, but they they lost so far. This is the first winner. Yeah, I wonder what he'd think about that. I don't think he'd care, <laughs> or or he'd talk our ears off about why it was incorrect and why it should have won. Right. Okay. So now that we're Wondering now that we're off to a blazing start <laughs> on Tarantino, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I am really excited to talk about this. But uh, this was a crazy week. Um, how was uh, how was yours? Uh, it was okay. It was okay. We have a we just had a long weekend here in Canada. Um, Tay and I are recording on that holiday Monday, um, so I, I had some time up north, which was nice. Uh, but before that, in in more news, you know, appropriate to this podcast, um, I went and I checked out, and I would highly recommend everyone else check out BlackBerry. Um, saw that in theaters this past week. It's a Canadian production about the uh, the world's first smartphone. It stars Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton and directed by uh, one of my favorites matt johnson a guy who's done a we don't talk about tv shows but he's done a great tv show that i love called nirvana the band the show and uh i think it was a really strong production i think it's beginning and closing scenes are like extremely well directed and well written choices um with some pretty clear influences um but uh it's a it's kind of a special thing because it wasn't made for a ton of money i was listening to an interview with johnson and he said um he estimates it's around six million american to make it and it's doing very well it's got great reviews uh i bet if they had a little bit more money they could probably market it as an awards contender but we'll see um i mean tay it's it was pretty much just made with our tax dollars it was all from telefilm canada (laughs) yeah um i still had to buy a ticket i couldn't just show my passport and get in for free but that's how it goes it was it was a great movie i'd I'd, if it's still in theaters when you hear this check it out because obviously it's going to go to streaming like extremely fast but uh, yeah, that's, if you can catch a theatrical, go for it. That's the unfortunate part. Like you know, this is my busy season with my job, and uh, the best movies start coming out now. And I honestly didn't have crazy high expectations after seeing the original trailer for Blackberry. I don't think it was a good trailer. It was a very terrible trailer because I've heard really good things about it. I've heard good things about the performances, and the trailer literally showcases those in a negative light i feel it, i don't i think it detracts it, it makes me feel like those performances are over the top or something so i'm gonna go in unbiased by the trailer yeah i like I matt, matt johnson's Johnson. stuff i think he's a very unique mind in the creative sphere right now um the fact that he's mm-hmm. canadian uh works with nathan fielder a bit uh like in those in those yep. veins i i really like that level of comedy so i'm excited to see what that movie does and hopefully he just can keep making movies at this production level because I don't want to necessarily see him like take off into the stratosphere and get like all these blockbuster movies. I want to see him focus on these cool Canadian yeah. stories. I think he's a unique filmmaker for the, in these times, and I, I would love to support it. Well, for better or worse, um, likely the latter, but it is what it is. He doesn't seem to be interested in getting scooped up to like direct a new Marvel movie or something. He is using the cachet from BlackBerry to try to produce a movie based on his TV show, Nirvana the Band the Show. Which is and great. That could, it, that could just be lighting his cachet on fire because Nirvana the Band the Show has been like half canceled like four times. And the company that owned it here in Canada went out of business and it's moved 
streaming platforms like four times. It's notoriously difficult to watch. So, I mean, best of luck. I'll be there opening night to see his movie. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I, I agree. It's nice that he's not moving into something more anonymous or something with a massive budget for no reason. He seems very... I listened to a great interview with him from The Big Picture, which I'll link. Um, he says some very interesting stuff about the Canadian film industry and his influences and what he thinks film can be in terms of what it does for a country and its identity. Um, very thoughtful guy. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. Maybe it's just you and me discussing it privately away from the show, but we, I think we talked mm-hmm. about it on the podcast too that we want to see filmmakers kind of make some money so they can fund their own projects, you know, things that they're actually passionate about. And this is the dream come true right here. So hopefully Matt Johnson just yeah. keeps pushing forward with that, with whatever he wants to do next. Yeah. It's sh- it, like, he's a creative mastermind, so it should be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're saying you had a really busy week. I know you did some flying for work. Were you able to squeeze in any movies on the plane or is the last movie you watched the movie we're talking about today? Uh, it was all uh, once upon a time all week, but um, yeah. you know, right before I left on my trip, you and I watched, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure, mm-hmm. which finally got around to it. Wow, wow, what a movie! Um, yeah, that was a very cool watch. Tim and I had some Sapporos and watched this beautiful mm-hmm. 1997 movie. Um, I don't want to get too into it because I'd love to talk about it in another way some other time on this podcast. But mm-hmm. um, that's a big recommendation from me. It's uh, if you like kind of that wave of uh, Eastern crime cinema that was really emerging in the late 90s and early 2000s with things like Memories of Murder that came out after too. Uh, I think it kind of fits mm-hmm. neatly into that vein, but it's its very own unique story and si- uh, style of direction. And I, I would highly recommend that. Um, but yeah. I, I, yeah, if we if we do those um, four episodes in four weeks again this October, maybe it'll be my pick. We'll see. Right, yeah. Busy October again. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we can if we can stomach that again. There's no guarantees. Um, but yeah, so I flew to Calgary this week and the forest fires mm-hmm. there, uh, the smoke was, the fires were about two hours north of Calgary, but the smoke mm-hmm. changed direction the day we flew in and I didn't, you couldn't see anything the whole time I was there, which was only oh, like man. a few days, but everything was like green and orange lit, just smog and haze. It was straight out of Blade oh. Runner in some instances. It was very smoky, very the dry. The end of Skyfall. Yeah. Or that entire that entire Fassbender Macbeth movie, like the entire last act is just lit by smoke. Oh, sorry, I didn't see that one. You didn't see that one? No. Huh? It's good looking movie. It was boy, it's uh it's plotting though. I bet. <laughs> um yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was the week. Yeah, I'm glad you survived. I hope you didn't inhale too much smoke. Uh we'll see we'll see how raspy you come across today, but um before we dig into uh, the movie we're talking about today, we should talk about next month. Uh, we're getting into more blockbusters are being released. Uh, we have a just a stellar summer schedule coming up uh, in the movie theaters. And so to line up with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, uh, James Mangold's upcoming fifth installment in the Indiana Jones series, uh, we're going to do Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. So that'll be our next episode. Just a classic unbeatable uh, blockbuster it's gonna be tons of fun to talk about and we know we'll get lots of you in on that because who hasn't seen that movie right Every, everyone's dad shows it to them when they're a kid definitely my so my my uh 
one of my family members was talking this weekend about how they've got to get their uh, their nine year old daughter to get uh, to watch Raiders sometime soon. And I'm like, great, you know, you have to have that seminal coming of age experience where you see those Nazis' faces melt and then you don't sleep that night. We all do it. It's just it's something you have to do. It's a rite of passage. Yes, precisely. Uh, and then other than that, we uh, yeah, we're gonna do a vote on Spielberg blockbusters. Uh, so I so no Munich. We've got Tim? Jaws. No Munich. I know that's <laughs> we're we're still bummed. We keep going to Spielberg and we keep being unable to justify putting Munich in it. But you'll definitely be able to pick between Jurassic Park and Jaws, War of the Worlds, and a fourth one that I cannot put my finger on right now. So maybe that's the tease. A surprise. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's Munich. Who knows? It's not Munich. It's not Munich. But that'll be next month, so keep an eye out for that vote. And, uh, you know, return to Raiders in the meantime if you want to have it fresh in mind for when our episode drops two weeks from now. Uh, In the meantime, we should dig into uh, this episode's movie, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which tells the story of waning 60s TV star Rick Dalton and his stunt double Cliff Booth, who, in the course of their seemingly regular lives, encounter the Manson family gang and change the course of Hollywood history. Starring Leo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie, and written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was released July 26, 2019. Uh, if you're not sure where you can watch it, Canadians, almost certainly it's Netflix, if I remember right. But yep. check the link in our show notes. Uh, and if you live in a different country, you'll find out where you can watch it there. And, uh, yeah, to continue with our paperwork, we got our budget and box office. I mean, uh, it's a Tarantino movie, so, like, it marketed itself. Uh, it also, though, had a solid trailer. Very easy, I think, to make this movie look good. Oh, um, yeah. Because it looks good itself, and it has lots of dynamic action. A lot of very handsome, beautiful people doing interesting things in period clothing that we still like to sort of fetishize now. Uh, so his budget was $96 million, nothing, not tiny for a, a period character drama, and it returned $374 million. Uh, and the tagline, which I think kind of tells you all you need to know about how a movie this specific and this uh, even narcissistic gets produced, uh, is that it is... Uh, promoted as the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, as if that's... I, I didn't even piece together that that was the actual tagline, but it, I guess there's nothing else. That's it. Nothing would would sell more tickets than that. I, that's right? a good if you point. To say that's like, a good point. You know, the, the, uh, the fairy tale that saves uh, Sharon Tate or an ode to the unsung heroes of broadcast TV westerns and their stunt doubles or you know the man the man who beat up bruce lee uh behind behind the scenes let me just say nobody beat the shit out of bruce right none of that any of those are interesting and compelling but none of them are going to sell tickets like the ninth and seemingly uh penultimate film from quentin tarantino yeah that's right didn't he say that he's only doing 10 movies i don't believe him no, but wasn't that what he always said? He's always said that, and I know that he has plans to do some mm. stage stage play writing, so like writing for theater. Um, I know he wants to write film books and things like that, so he'll have plenty of things on his plate to do, but I can't see him staying away from movies if he lives a lot longer, you know? Like, if he... I don't know how old he is now, but it, say he lives to like 80 years old, I can't imagine him like retiring from movies now. Yeah, I get the feeling like, you know, 10 is a cool sort of call to make in your early career. Like after you get sort of big with Reservoir and Pulp and you're like, I'm just doing 10, a nice clean round number. 
right? And like maybe he looked at all his favorite directors and they have like eight to 12 and he picked the number, who knows? Uh, he's 60 for the record, so another 20 years uh, based on that sort of estimation. Yeah. Um, but I get the feeling like if he comes across it, if he comes up with a good story nugget and he already made 10 movies, he's going to make an 11th, right? Like, yeah, I um, don't see him Austin staying Butler, away. Yeah. Austin Butler, who is one of the minor characters in this movie, in his promo circuits for Elvis, talked a lot about working with Tarantino and how big of a dream this was for him and how wonderful an experience. And the, the thing that they say, did I talk about this on the, when we talked about Elvis? Or did we, no. I can't remember if we talked about this on Mike, but Butler explained that like when they were shooting this movie and they would get a shot and complete it and they know they have it, Tarantino knows he has it. And he's the guy who wrote it and directed it. He's obviously got a hand on the editing, so he would know if they had gotten what they needed. He'd go, okay, we got it, everyone, but we're going to do it one more time. Because, and then everybody on set would say together, because we love making movies. So, like, that guy's not going to stop at 10 if he has another good idea. Yeah, I could also see him honestly contemplating his, what he would do next and seeing it as not worth it. His comment was something mm-hmm. more specifically about releasing something theatrically. So... I just I thought I thought I just heard like maybe in the last week I thought I saw a headline that someone has seen his next script because for a while it was rumored it was going to be about Pauline Kael the film critic out of L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's not specifically about that. I've heard some stuff. There is a concept out there. Okay. It's not. I don't think a script is. Is it a screenplay? But it's re- it's it's very recent. Um, I believe so. I thought it was for a movie. We're saying a lot of I thinks and I don't knows. Uh, we'll we'll put a if I know if I find out anything, I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we don't usually try and ride on speculation, just because we're two dudes discussing stuff that we have no idea what we're talking about. Really, we just watch the movies and talk about what we see. So, whatever Tarantino decides to do, though, I I'll kind of fully support any movie he does. I'd go see his stage plays. I think he'd be terrific at writing those too. So he's got my support. Uh, so. So, I mean, a very quick, spurious Google. Uh, his 2024 movie, which starts filming this fall, is called The Movie Critic, set in the late 70s. Wow. So it is happening. Yeah, he, he, made it, he made it official a couple days after his 60th birthday, which was March of this year. So, yeah. Now, this is like an impulsive reactionary response, <laughs> yeah. but... Does that not seem a little underwhelming? It does. Like I, like I don't. Ye- For the record, I think, I think yeah, Pauline Kael was, like was a really overly crass film critic who I don't really respect as much as I think he does. Yeah, she had a specific personality, and also like so. This Collider article is its title is Quentin Tarantino's The Movie Critic is set in 1977, but it's not about Pauline Kael. So. I don't know, inspired by an amalgam, who knows. Um, and I agree, Pauline Kael was iconic for her very specific style. I also think she often got things wrong that didn't stand the test of time, just like Ebert did, just like any movie critic I does. Mean, right? Sure, I'm not going to hold like a movie critic's opinions against themselves, but her way of handling some topics that she didn't like, I, I found kind of rude or crass in a way that I don't think is professional and i think that is what pushed her to be loved by people as a film critic because she was abrasive but i i didn't really enjoy reading her stuff when i was like you know when i was in film school i i 
didn't like mm. reading what she had to say about things for the most part because I didn't. Yeah, it felt like kind of like making a name for yourself by being like aggressively confident and making yeah. hard calls yeah. instead of like, I think, you know, you and I and also I think a lot more modern criticism will often come down on like, this is what I think about it. And I recognize that that could change within within a week or a month or a year, like as this movie sits. Whereas I think film criticism at the time, where it was just like you're just churning these out, and you have to you make a call, and you you want people to read the newspaper you're writing for. Yeah. So if you can make a name by being like a real really intense about it, the same way like you know YouTube stuff that rises to the top of the algorithm is stuff where it's very polarizing on one side or the other. There's not a lot of middle ground stuff. Yeah, and we got to remember, too, like, rewatchability or rewatching movies wasn't as much of a thing when Pauline Kale was writing mm-hmm. for film. So it wasn't like you had multiple chances to rewatch something. It was kind of like you get the one chance to watch it, you report on it, and then you submit your yeah. report to the paper. They publish it, and that's your word on the movie for history. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to sit here and say Pauline Kale is not a good person or whatever. Like, I don't know anything really about her other than, like, what I've we seen. We get it, right. Taylor. You think she's a hack. Well, I think she's <laughs> needlessly <laughs> abrasive and targets the wrong things in her reviews. But I digress. I will wait to see what Tarantino does with the content, and I will more mm-hmm. than likely still be very supportive and want to see what he whatever he's doing. So... I did want to come back to this tagline because I wanted to use it as a launch pad into our discussion on Tarantino as kind of this auteur. We haven't talked about him on the podcast enough yet, so I think it's a really easy easy way to get into the movie is just talking about him as a personality, him as an auteur in this industry who kind of has carved his own path. Like he's very, like it's the most he has maybe more power than any other director in the world right now. Yeah, I'd say like probably him and Nolan, I think more likely than anyone could like say, hey, I have a concept for a movie and like, you know, give one or two sentences on the brief. And so long as it's not absolutely unmarketable or like, you know, NC-17 content that can't make money. Uh, it probably almost certainly gets a green light. They're, like they're, it's cachet you can bet on, and again, like that's why you have this as the tagline. That's all people need to know because there's really there's nothing particularly like Tarantino, other than Tarantino, and there are some really bad knockoffs, especially like in the late '90s to the early aughts and mid aughts. Even there's stuff where like movies that I like in general, but like you can tell in the dialogue the person who wrote this really liked Reservoir Dogs, really liked Pulp Fiction. And it never plays exactly the same. It doesn't really work. Whereas even, like, I think people can, like, match Sorkin's style more easily than they can match Tarantino's. I think so, too. If we're talking about dialogue. Because Sorkin's characters sound... You know, I actually don't know what the discrepancy is there, but I think it's because Sorkin's characters just talk so quickly and confidently whereas tarantino has more variety in both those categories there's less confident characters and they don't all speed talk and so i feel like there is yeah, more yeah it's all it's almost like to it yeah like like sorkin's dialogue dictates performance to an extent you have to perform like you're performing a sorkin script right 
And there are outliers. Like, I think there are people who make that work without sounding like a Sorkinite, like, you know, Jesse Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg, yeah. Is one of the headlines where, like, he gets to do his own performance and he doesn't trip over the dialogue. Whereas, like, the entire cast of The West Wing and everyone in, in the Steve Jobs movie, which I'm a big fan of, they all sound like Sorkinites, right? Like, it is what it is. Whereas, yeah, Tarantino, all his characters can have different flavors and tones and speeds and rhythms. But there's some unique mix of, like, their pop culture awareness, the yeah. way that they yeah. take a really long path to get to the point that they're trying to make. A very artful, like, they're all great storytellers, but I think his characters still have voices. One is telling a story in a different fashion than another. So it, there's, like, there's, like, another level of obfuscation. There's a bit of a facade between what we get as the audience and what Tarantino's putting on the page. And... I mean, I think that's a far more difficult thing for somebody to achieve. You know, I, all of I, this to say that, like, you know, when you're watching a Tarantino movie or when you're watching one that's not made by him, but like maybe the script was written, like if you've never seen True Romance and it just showed up on TV and you yeah. watched it, at a certain point you're going to start feeling like, what did Tarantino have to do with this? Yeah, seriously, True Romance is one of those ones that just feels like it's a Tarantino movie. Um, and you know what else just from this conversation that occurred to me? It just stands out that I want to know way more about Tarantino's characters than Sorkin's characters. They don't, Sorkin's characters yeah. don't create the aura or air of mystery that I think Tarantino's characters kind of uh, like uh, cast upon the audience. You know, I... Not that, mm. not to say that they're not fleshed out, but they don't give you all the details of a character's past, or they make you feel so invested in what they are talking about, you want to just know what they think about other things. Sorkin's characters just kind of tell you what they are. Yeah, like Tarantino's characters, I think, they, pre they very expertly establish often that they have a code. And they might be like an objectively bad person, and they have some code by which they live their life that allows them to torture or kill or maim people, whatever. Or they're an objectively good person. They also have a code for the way that they do things. They, you, I think he's really good at actually like imparting whatever the character's value system is. Through action, yeah. through dialogue, things like that. But you generally understand what they think about the world through how they act. And not, not just what they're saying. And then, especially in the more modern ones, you also get a really good idea of their preferences especially in terms of media music right. and stuff like that yeah um and well, i think the value system is very core to that a is lot of it, I, right that's like, a, whether it's, it's like point. bounty hunters saying like i already bring i always bring in somebody alive they always meet the hangman or you know cliff booth being like hey man you 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 busted the tire on my boss's car um i could probably more easily change the tire myself but you're gonna fix it because you did it yeah. You weird Manson hillbilly. <laughs> Can I say hillbilly? Are we allowed to say that still? I think so. All right. <laughs> In like a broad sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that guy, like, that guy's a hillbilly. The, I don't even know who that is in the Manson gang. Oh, I think they are all named. I think, like, that he went pretty deep into that. Oh, I, they're all based on real people. Yeah, yeah. It, like, they yeah. had names for all of them. But uh, I think what shines most about his characters is just that they're you just cheer for them. You want to cheer for his characters. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even the antagonists, most of the time, I'd say. Um, he consistently creates incredibly likable characters and also delivers, tr like, gets the best performances out of his actors. 
he has a tendency yeah. to hire people who maybe aren't mainstream actors. There's a lot of character actors and B B role actors that he puts into mainstream roles and they mm-hmm. flourish under his direction. I I know that yeah. some of his onset practice has been criticized and probably for the right reasons in terms of some safety things that has been that have been suggested about his film sets in the past you know and unnecessary things yeah they're unnecessary in the modern era yeah i i really don't like hearing that kind of stuff about any filmmaker but his ability to direct talent remains i think unsurpassed in hollywood i don't know anybody who can get the consistency or the consistent level of performance that he gets out of his actors yeah, like he just sort of, you know, he burst on the scene and had such a unique style and rooted himself really firmly and then just continued, you know, like the the first half of his career was maybe a little bit more up and down. Like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp were so huge. I don't think Jackie huge. Brown did quite as well. Well, that one took a lot um, of criticism because it mostly because it followed up those other movies. Mm-hmm. But I remember like however old I was when Kill Bill came out. And, oh, like, my God. Everyone I knew, plus or minus five years my age, was talking about it nonstop. And then the idea that there was a sequel, right, and things like that. And and um, and then I mean, I I was I really hit like my theater going momentum uh, when Inglorious Bastards came out that summer. I was seeing two or three movies a week, and that movie is just incredible. Obviously, he sort of. In, in the Western Hollywood sense, he had discovered Christoph Waltz in that movie. And then since then, Christoph Waltz has basically just done the same thing every time. And it's like, wow, he was perfect for Hans Landa. And that's about it, right? Um, I also think Inglorious Bastards is a worthy movie to bring up in relation to this film because it's another instance of his revisionist history. Yeah, and, his wish fulfillment, right? Yeah. It's sort of like the power that film can play both actively like say if you're lighting film on fire in a theater full of the nazi elite um but also in a less direct sense in terms of being wish fulfillment if we're going to use film to show unrealistic things why not end the second world war sooner and see hitler's hitler's main guys uh you know torn apart by by bullets being shot by nazis or uh, sorry nazis by uh by jewish guerrilla fighters who are pretending to be Italian filmmakers. Right. right? Um, or, or why not save? Yeah. <laughs> why not save um, Sharon Tate from the Manson family? Why not have a, uh, a slave kill slavers? Right? Yeah. And it kind of started this um, whole trend of him re- doing revisionist history because all the movies since, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like Hateful Eight is a hard one to parse. I mean, in that sure, lens in the sense that there's I no don't, historical I don't think accuracy. He, he, and I don't think he really picks like, like if you want to put that in the frame of like let's revise history, it's basically just that like yeah, there's no historical people can, figures. People can over yeah yeah, and it's just like you know, white men and black men can overcome their differences in order to kill a woman. Like that's an that's kind of how that movie ends and it's very nihilistic and I'm not, I still don't know how to parse it except under those terms. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a bit of an outlier. That's that one's been a, a tough cookie to chew on for a number of years now. I, I agree. And it, but it has inspired confidence in one, re, in one respect for me. And that's that he can write a stage play. Cause I think hate flight is yeah. a stage play on paper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anyway, we're we're on a, a long a long trek here. Basically, just talk about 
by the time that he's gotten to his ninth film, he can basically get away with anything he wants. And what he wants to do is celebrate the Hollywood that he came of age in. He wasn't born in California. I believe he's from Tennessee, but he was working in a video store in Hollywood at the setting of this movie. He was listening to the radio that they listened to in this movie. He was following the movie stars and TV stars that they talk about in this movie. He was ancillary to so many of the things that were going on in this and clearly he wanted to use his cachet and the budget he could get from a from a studio to rebuild this hollywood and celebrate the more unsung members of the industry uh chiefly you know failing tv stars that he loved and uh and their stunt doubles and then uh, save sharon tate from the manson family which if you don't know that story um I mean, in very brief, like uh, the man, uh, Charlie Manson influenced members of his of his family, including Tex, played by Austin Butler, and uh, Squeaky Froman, and I'm not sure of the other two that showed up there uh, to uh, to go and and murder Sharon and and her two friends that were there because they were occupying a house of a guy that Manson used to know who he was trying to get a record deal with. It's a very long and weird story. I'd highly recommend, or actually, I'll make it my recommendation. I'll tell you what I recommend later. Ooh, another tease. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that really seems to be the conception of this movie, right? It, it, he gets to revise history, like one of the maybe the highest profile murder in Hollywood history, and far from the only one. It's got a, a pretty bloody past as a as a a plot of land. Um, but super high profile in terms of the people involved in it. But then also he gets to celebrate these people that he loves and like probably people that he would have loved to cast, right? Whoever yeah, Rick right. Dalton is based on that's right. is someone he would have loved to give her career to, but he, he didn't have the cachet he has then. Yeah, and it's important to remember the context of that he's choosing to set this film in, right? It's 1969, a very, very important mm-hmm. year in pop culture history. It's where... The the code of cinema was actually rewritten, and that extended to um, how movies were rated. There was a shift in ideolo- ideology in terms of youth movies being more profitable. So there was a turn to like make ratings more lenient to entice more radical filmmaking, to entice youth at the theater more, to increase money at the theaters. Mm-hmm. And it started in 1967 with Bonnie and Clyde and kind of this two year period of changeover ended in 1969 with easy rider and the death of Sharon Tate. Um, in the Manson family. It was believed that this murder shattered like the creative, creative ideology of Hollywood at the time. And this is kind of like him Tarantino suggesting that Hollywood be, would be entirely different had this event not happened in this year. Yeah. Kind of, kind of took, kind of took its innocence even though again yeah. like if you go back to the very beginnings of movie making there's a lot of nasty stuff going on behind the scenes and how they treated their stars and drug use and abuse and all sorts of that how they used animals like etc like a million things you can talk about in an in a sliding doors universe we would we would have talked about babylon in this episode which is a lot about you know how not classy the industry was and things like that but i guess the 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 sense of optimism that was yeah. that was rising mm-hmm. over the couple of years leading up to this moment, this critical point, was there's so much optimism, and a lot of movies actually are set in this time because of like this radical shift in ideology in terms of uh, violence in the world at the time, 
like so many things changed in the in these few years and hollywood was like a microcosm of it all because it was so yeah. much at the epicenter and, of pop culture and i mean and yeah so much of this movie brings in those ideas but without making them the focal point of a given sequence so like you often have like on the radio you've got vietnam war news coming in and then i i really like that i would say generally like hippies are usually shown as like heroes or at least sympathetic in movies and i love that this one you're from the pov of like the uh the more culturally um central um older crowd right so like rick dalton he's a cowboy actor can't stand the hippies they smell bad they're reeking up his his hollywood boulevard they're just like they're wandering around asking people for money you know um and and like and you mentioned easy rider which is really like a cultural shift in movie making um you know starring dennis hopper which will come we'll talk about the reference to dennis hopper in this movie later yeah, open it's use of drugs shown on film yeah 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 because it was the haze code you're referring to right that ended in 68 or 69 it ended in 69 i think but i think the pro like the process of that shift started with bonnie and clyde because they saw the success mm-hmm. of that and then i mean to to draw a line there it's either Raiders or Temple of Doom that they made the PG-13 rating for, the next movie we talked oh, about. Oh, right. right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're... Yeah. It might have... It might have been Temple might've of been Doom. might have been Temple. Yeah. Anyway, there's a big industry and there's a lot of money involved in how you rate movies because obviously it determines who can go see them. Um, so that 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 is a good point that this is kind of the sticking point. It's not just about like saving Sharon Tate, but it's like, what if there is a completely different altered history where like you did not shatter the innocence of that current era and they kept on with what they were doing and you didn't have easy rider didn't take hold american graffiti didn't lead to star wars right right? like stuff like that and i think the Um, way that the film ends with rick dalton meeting sharon tate it's assumed that then he would meet roman polanski then they would go on the like the old Western star would be revived and the hippie movement yeah. repressed because of the heinous crime that was attempted, mm-hmm. not actually fulfilled. You know, I, I feel like there's like this ideological or this idealist thinking on Tarantino's part here, but I don't think he's actually that far off. It could have very much changed everything we know about pop culture and Hollywood mm-hmm. if that night didn't happen yeah. the way it did. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's being overdramatic. Yeah, no, that's true. No. No, it's it's entirely fair. Like these these are these critical moments, right? Um, I also so I mean another thing to to mention. I did bring up Bollywood or Bollywood. I did bring up Babylon. Um, not quite the same as Bollywood, um, and that sort of just like made me realize that like I think so many of movies where they're like we're gonna do a period drama about Hollywood. There are these big bombastic sequences about creation or production. So like. You've got a big tense sequence where they're trying to write a script and they're trying to break the story or they're trying to figure out what's the catchphrase for this iconic character that we all know. Or, like, here's them shooting a movie. Look at how insane it is. Babylon has phenomenal sequences. I love how they're done about, like, the chaos on a 1920s silent film set where they're trying to get 80 people on horseback to align with explosives that are going on in the back while you have a kiss in the foreground and all this stuff. I like that this movie is not this movie is way more about like how slow and patient the life of an actor or a stuntman is. 
right? Like there are no bombastic things on set outside of like Rick's performing successes when he does that TV show pilot with Jim Stacy, um, Lancer. But I, I think you're talking more from the director's standpoint, though. Well, I just, I just, like, oh yeah, Babylon is way more concerned with direction, even though it's about actors. But I'm just saying, like, this movie is not particularly. I, I, I think it's oddly like in control about how it presents the work that actors do. They like they don't deny the success that um, Rick Dalton has uh, in in doing that pilot, but like a lot of the movie is like he pulls up on site, like Cliff drops him off. He's hung over. He doesn't know where to go on set. He he sits in hair and makeup, and this weird director comes by and tells him how he wants him dressed. Then he has to sit and read a book for an hour while the spirit gum dries. Like, and he none has of like that this, is like sexy or exciting. And, and he's has like he's very low confidence, right? Rick Dalton. He's like a very mm-hmm. fragile. He's a very fragile. He's hiding a stutter. Confidence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they right? they really uh, or like and I love the sequence where like Jim Stacy like just wants to talk to him about um about not getting the Great Escape. Yeah, and like, how many times do you think Rick Dalton's had to tell that story? Well, of course, you, he doesn't want to talk about how he did get it. Based on the dialogue, there that they kind of—that's yeah. once again the brilliance of Tarantino's writing there too. You can tell. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, he's like sheltering the story a lot. He's like told it so many times, and he knows how to tell it without getting emotional. Uh, there, there's yeah. a lot to. But you can DiCaprio's see he's still fantasizing Tarantino's direction. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I love that. There's all that, right? That like. Obviously, they, they they do have their bigger moments where like he pulls off that sequence with the little girl mm-hmm. um, in the in the shot, or like when Rick uh, when Cliff Booth beats up Bruce Lee behind the scenes. Like these are not boring sequences, but like I like that the general idea is that making movies is a lot of sitting around and waiting, which is what are right? which which is what is happening when <laughs> Cliff Booth fights Bruce Lee. They're just sitting yeah. around waiting. Yeah, like he's having he's he's having milk and wait like and Bruce Lee's passing the time by like preaching about how awesome he is. Yeah, which I've I I know that his family was not a fan of hearing. Nope, probably not. But also, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if if um if Bruce Lee talked like that behind the scenes because like if you've seen any interview with him, he's an extremely confident guy. For good reason. He was an incredible athlete and a great performer. I don't deny him the right course, to speak like that. Of course. But I'm also not surprised that, like, you know, a war hero and uh, undeniably violent person like Cliff Booth would, would take umbrage with him saying he could beat up Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay at that time. Yeah. And it once again, it just adds more of Tarantino's perspective to the equation and I don't think he goes out of his way to tarnish the reputation of actors. So I think that's him having a lot of fun with it. And I also think that's the way he believed Bruce Lee was. I don't think he's trying to be sensational here. I think he's doing it for his love of what Bruce Lee stood for in the industry. Mm-hmm. It's what it feels like, at least. Yep. And and I think, you know, just like, just like he wanted to use this as an opportunity to celebrate these TV actors that he loved who never maybe got their fair shake. Because his revision for... The fictional Rick Dalton, who I'm sure if you Google it, Tarantino has talked about who he's actually based on and he just didn't use his name. Um, but I like that the revision for Rick Dalton, even though he wasn't a real person with a real history, is that like this director gives him this chance where he goes from his sort of TV acting job and actually gets a chance to act. Right. He improvises. He develops a character. 
um, he 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 inputs on the scene like he says like it was his idea to throw the girl down, which is like the the high point of the dynamism of that scene anyway. Um, and I like that they chart that progression where like in the makeup trailer, when the director's like, "Well, I want him to have a big droopy mustache, and I want him to have uh, slick back hippie hair, and I want him to have a big fringe jacket." You you you, you, you want him to look like a hippie? <laughs> well, think less hippie, more. <laughs> Hell's Angel! Say, uh, Get me you, Sam. Sam, uh, if you got me covered up in all this, uh, this junk, uh, how's the audience gonna know it's me? I hope they don't. Hmm. I don't want them to see Jake Cahill. I want them to see Caleb. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. You can tell, like, he was so used to his work-a-day job on Bounty Law, yeah. where he's... New verse old way of thinking, too, right? As Jake Cahill, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, and just like, um... Uh, Schwarz, uh... Yeah, Al Pacino's that character. opening scene, right? Yeah. That, like, he... When he's cast, he's cast as Rick Dalton, not as, not as an actor, really. He's cast as a face. Right. Okay, so... How much further are we getting into Tarantino before we get into our scene here, Tim? I mean, I think that's plenty. Like, this is one of those things where we could talk about, like, Hollywood history and the implications of, of the commentary and stuff like that. We didn't even talk about, like, Old West Towns and, like, Spawn Ranch and the fact that Bruce Dern is in it. Like, Bruce Dern and Kurt Russell, who are two guys who grew up at this time working on the sets, right? There's so much to dig into, but I'd say let's just get to our scene. We'll definitely come back to Tarantino another time. Inglorious Bastards lost a vote before. I'm sure it'll come back around. People love that movie. Yeah, including us. Um, where do, yeah. I did want to ask maybe, maybe this question before we get into our scene. Where does Once Upon a Time rank for you in his filmography? Uh, two or three. Really? That high? Number two or number You're eight. that high on it. I love this movie. Okay. I think it, I think this movie is such a good hang. It's there's so many patient slow parts and like that's why I love the scene that we picked because it's some of my favorite vibe of this. But I, I think this movie you can just like again if we were living in a cable era, TV era where you're flipping channels, this is the kind of thing where like, oh, this is on like just one scene just melts into the next. With, right? with commercials, this movie would be like three and a half hours long. Yeah, it'd be it'd be insane. It'd be your whole afternoon. Yeah. What about you? Where's this ring? More like five or six? Yeah, five or six. Yeah. I don't even know. What, like, my, I think my See, order thing- is constantly in flux. But the only movie mm-hmm. I would say that I think this is for sure better than of his is Hateful Eight. Yes. I like it maybe better than Django too, but Django has some sequences that I think are much better than anything in this film. But I'll, I don't really want to compare. I just wanted to kind of get a gauge on where you rank this. But number two or three is very high. Um, it I'm, ranks. It ranks high. I'm definitely yeah. like it's below the below the halfway point of his filmography for me. Below the fold. Yeah. 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 That's fair. The other thing, like I just. I need to re-return to like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, stuff like that. Like, and especially like when I was younger, I just overwatched Kill Bill and stuff like that. And now they, they just kind of like cemented a little bit lower in my mind. Um, whereas like this one, Inglorious, like except from the latter half, I've seen a lot more, and I find are are a little bit easier to hang with. I also find the um, equation changes a bit yeah. if you consider Kill Bill one movie or two movies. 
This is true. Because I think yeah. Kill Bill 1 is far and, better than um, 2. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's also Death Proof to consider. Yeah, which I consider. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Consider. I like it. Okay, let's get into our scene. Let's do it. Um, we picked... You know what? As far as picking a scene today, I don't think it's it could get any more appropriate than this one for Tim and I. Uh, I think mm-hmm. on first glance, this is a, a really low impact scene to choose but in a movie that's full of vignettes and character moments and nostalgia and meandering characters this is a cool scene to kind of choose as a microcosm of all that because all we're going to talk about today is Cliff Booth driving home from work and hanging out with his dog the scene takes place at 2013 into the film and goes to 26 minutes in so it's a just under a six minute scene after driving rick home cliff drives through hollywood boulevard en route to his trailer on the lot of the infamous van nuys drive-in movie theater he prepares food for himself and his dog brandy as she eagerly awaits his attention yeah and I mean, it's really, it's that simple, man. Yep. And I love that, like, you put in those sentences and you're like, yes, that's correct. <laughs> that's right? a scene and, like, in a movie. It's the only, like, it, the, the, um, the juice of this sequence only exists in a cinematic format, right? Like it, you, you can tell someone like, oh, there's this great scene. Like it's, it, it was so good. Like you're walking out of the theater and like, and then that scene where Cliff drives home and feeds his dog and you're like, actually you have to see it. You can't, there's no other way to impart why this is so much fun to watch and how just like simple and quiet it is. Although there is so much going on behind the scenes in terms of production. So, I mean, like we'll start with his drive home. Yeah. Number one, like you got, you, you open with a crane shot, right? As he pulls a J turn in his little crappy, um, uh, convertible to leave uh Ciela drive. Like thematically, I love that. You know, the for the first 20 minutes of this movie, he's just been in relation to Rick Dalton, right? Like, he gets introduced in that little behind-the-scenes featurette. Now, if you think you're seeing double, don't adjust your television sets because, well, in a way, you are. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick stunt double Cliff Booth. And then, um, you know, then he has to listen. He, go, he drives Rick to a meeting, and he sits there and has a Bloody Mary. And then... Uh, he uh, he has to listen to Rick Wine for like 10 minutes about his failing career. Drops him off. Sets a hard pickup time. All right, 7.15 a.m. 7.15. Out the door. Out the door. In the car. All right, see you then. Impar- like implying that like regularly Rick is late or he's too hungover in the morning to leave on time. And it's not like it's not like Cliff has to get anywhere the next day. It's just that he has to get rick dalton to set on time so he can get into makeup and then you shut the door and then now it's cliff's night now he gets to live his life and his life is driving fast listening to great music having a beer and macaroni and hanging out with his dog and watching the man from uncle yeah and for a scene that seems to accomplish very little on a thematic level the reason why tim and i actually think that this is an important scene to discuss is because like a lot of scenes we talk about on this podcast There's a setup here that allows us to understand context more seamlessly later in the film. I think a couple things Mm -hmm. help address this. 
the obvious one being the dog the less obvious one being just the setup of this of the setting of cielo drive uh where rick dalton lives where sharon tate is his neighbor um and we get like the shot of cliff driving out of cielo drive onto like the main road there and peeling out and this is exactly where we see the hippies come and set up later it's almost the exact same like angle and lens choice so we have like a familiarity with the street sign yeah it makes it really clear that cielo drive is a private drive it has no other exit right it's almost like you're in this dead dead end corner right and it doesn't mean anything until of course a carload of hippies dressed in black and wielding knives show up and you're like oh yeah this is like you know this isn't necessarily a way out but also that's clearly why you know like rick would come out and yell at them so all this other stuff we have to talk about but you're right like it sets up the geography of the location uh and then later of course in our sequence it sets up how well trained brandy is yeah um and so you understand exactly how in control of the sequence they are at the end of the movie but also they do it by having this zero stake sequence the only thing at stake is how quickly will brandy get to eat yeah. she's so hungry and she's so <laughs> patient but she makes one little wine is that a wine what did i tell you about wine and you wine you don't eat I will throw this shit in the trash. I don't want to, but I will. And then he makes it clear, if you whine, I will throw it in the garbage, right? Like, those are the stakes for this sequence. This dog might not get its dinner. And as much as... Which, I mean, and we, we don't we don't condone not feeding your pets. Make sure you feed your pets. But in this fictional movie, this is it's a well-done set of stakes. Well, yeah, he, he's wearing, like, that big smirk on his face as he's talking to the dog. And yeah. it's it's so believable that they have a relationship and i think that that's probably the biggest takeaway of the scene for me is just how well constructed that all is um i think just to touch on like the drive home first though um i did want to talk about the radio the cars the setting you you lent me your your uh, 4k of this and Mm -hmm. watching some of the productions uh design stuff behind the scenes is is crazy eh yeah this is again like that that power and cachet that Tarantino has. It's like, all right, we're going to close down storefronts on uh, four blocks of Hollywood Boulevard uh, in 2018 and completely redo the facades, redo the flyers that are hanging yeah. in the windows just so that like, you know, Brad Pitt can drive past at 60 miles an hour and later Sharon Tate can walk by them on her way to a bookstore. And so, right, like almost none of it's seen in detail, you know? Yeah, incredible production design work by uh, Barbara Ling, who's the production designer on this film. It sounded like she worked her ass off to get everything that she wanted and that Tarantino wanted. She seemed, based on her interviews, that she wanted this just as much as he did in terms of the perfect uh, recreation of these nostalgic places that she knew from her childhood as well, apparently. Um, So there's months of planning that went into the pre-production for these scenes that like Tim just said are really only background noise and flavor. Mm-hmm. It, it again, it almost felt like, you know, Tarantino with this, this amount of cachet was like, we do need this for background. It maybe doesn't even have to be that detailed, but like then while they're shooting, he gets to live in the 1969 Hollywood Boulevard and enjoy himself. 
Yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, he just, he made a little theme park for himself, but also there's a great thing that, that, um, the production Barbara explains in one of those interviews where like they remade the facade of this hot dog stand or pretzel stand or something. And like the original owner came on set and like started crying. Cause he was like, that's exactly how it looks when I bought it. It was, a yeah. oh my, you know, it's cool stuff, right. To like, to be able to use this kind of influence to just be this detail oriented and create this memory is uh, is a really kind of kind of magical thing. A cool part of that was also that they do or a lot of places on Hollywood Boulevard are still like preserved or protected in a lot of ways. So they've a lot of the places, even though they've changed like what the venue actually is, have kept the theater marquees in front of their stores as like historical. Mm-hmm. And they were able to like just revamp some of the marquees and not have to reconstruct all of them from scratch, which is honestly that that's one of the more the things I thought would have been more taxing on production design, but they didn't have to redo a lot mm-hmm. of the marquees. They just fixed them up and put new yeah. text and lighting on them, which is pretty cool to hear yeah. that Hollywood's like that. I've obviously never been to Hollywood, so I didn't know that it was so well preserved, yeah. but something tells me that the facade work on this is still very top notch. It's just capitalize, capitalizing on like the perfect neighborhood that they could to do to like actually feasibly make this happen, right? You're not building a set from scratch. Yeah, no, and I mean, yeah. And so another consideration, I think, in the way that this is directed is that, you know, as Cliff flies past all these facades that you barely get to see, it's worth noting how fast he's driving and how clear the traffic is. I think that's also another kind of like... Yeah back in the good old days of Hollywood where you could get from Seattle drive to Van Nuys in a reasonable time. Again, Tay and I have never been to Hollywood. We haven't driven around there. I think it has fairly iconic reputation as being a horrible city to drive in or horrible region. However, you even want to define the many, 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 many cities within Los Angeles and all the podcasts I listen to about filmmakers and film critics who are in the LA area and they're like, well, I, I needed to go see it at this AMC theater on the other side. And it took three and a half hours because of the traffic it was supposed to take two, which is insane. Like, you know, I, 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 I drive three hours to completely leave our region here and, uh, and go to go to a completely different part of our province. And uh, so I, I think, I think it's very intentional that like you get to enjoy cliff enjoying driving at a great speed throughout LA and listening to great music on the radio, which again would be right out of you know Tarantino's subconscious, having listened to that radio, K whatever, um, uh, when he was working in video stores in 1969. Yeah, and his uh, I love both cars that he gets to drive in this. I know that uh, yeah. Rick Dalton's car, the Cadillac Coupe de Ville, very sweet car. I love the cream mm-hmm. color too. Yeah, but Brad Pitt's car, or should I say, Cliff Booth's car in this film. The 1968 Volkswagen Carbon Ghia, what a sweet ride. I just am yeah. very jealous that he's whipping around in that thing because it just looks so much fun. I would say I also like I feel very seen by this sequence because I really do love when I know it's not super long drive, but like late at night, end of the night, I just saw a movie and I got out or I just went to see a show or I went and hung out with someone or went to a bar or whatever and then you know you've got like an up to a half hour drive home and it's a nice summer night and you can put on some music you like and just enjoy it. There's something very specific about that. And uh, if I think it's very well represented in just like these no dialogue sequences 
you don't get to see really Brad Pitt's face direct on. It's always in profile. Um, I think there are some shots that shoot up from within the cab to see him like shifting gears. Yeah. But like it's not it's romanticized, but I don't think it's like made more dynamic or unrealistic than it is. Like he does that J turn to start, but then it's not like he's driving like a stunt driver on public. Well, streets. the peel out he's just off enjoying of yellow the drive. drive is the same. Yeah. yeah. Like that's pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, to uh, Billy Stewart, too. Yeah, and then Joe Cocker, The Letter, is just a phenomenal track. I'm such a fan. That entire live album at the Fillmore is fantastic. That's a little sneaky recommendation for you. And it, yeah, so the three songs in the sequence, there's Billy Stewart's Summertime, Joe Cocker's The Letter, and Bob Seger's Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. I think only Bob Seger is on the soundtrack for the movie, though. Mm. Yeah, they couldn't get the others? I don't really know how that whole Mm. sector of the industry works, to be honest with you, because you'll hear a song in a movie that seems like it's on equal par with the rest of the songs on the soundtrack but they won't make the cd or the soundtrack after the movie's out and i never quite understood Mm. what the difference was there maybe it's the licensing thing that i just am completely oblivious to yeah i'm not sure how that works either that's that's beyond beyond it for me but i like the music that's in this sequence to be sure this this is uh Um, and then they probably my favorite soundtrack of all time i will say wow right on you know we did the big chill, right? Oh, I know. But this this is more <laughs> my era of music. I really liked the yeah, tail yeah. end of the 60s and the early 70s too. But tail end of the 60s is fantastic music. It was almost like an iconic five years of music that's still kind of referenced to this day as being a part of like a nostalgic past. Mm. Um, and yeah. I think this movie has a lot going for it too in the sense that it is able to relish in all the music of the era in a really fun way with all the cars and the, the driving and the attention to the radio, the incorporation of the advertisements. Yeah. All that kind of works in favor for me. But when I look at the amount of songs that are in this movie included on the soundtrack and not included, I just can't say that any movie has had this many good songs in it. Yeah. No, it's great. And I mean, I love like there even there are literal needle drops, right? Where like J.C. Bring is putting on something in the Polanski house and tuning up the radio and, and things like that. Like it's almost always in context with the exception of like the score stuff that they'll put in um, or like the super like wistful fairy tale music over the final crane shot. Like it's so great balance of both. And you're right. It's a killer soundtrack. Um. And then, I mean, yeah, so the music takes us all the way to Van Nuys, where it's revealed that Cliff Booth lives behind the old drive-in. Uh, nice and nice other little point, like Tarantino has the audio of that feature presentation card playing. With that great horn music, which I know it gets used lots. Our local film house uses it, or at least they did for a couple seasons. Uh, it's a fun sort of like soul track with a lot of horns where they let you know that the main feature is about to play. And then, uh, and then yeah, he gets into his trailer and, uh, and immediately he does something that's, uh, I don't know if it's an intentional reference, but for us, I'm, I'm taking it as he, he uh, lies down on the floor to greet his dog just like Mills does in Seven. 
Wow, I didn't even think about that one. Right? Yeah, so I don't know if that was Pitt. Maybe Pitt just does that with all dogs, and they just let he's not really acting. <laughs> or maybe he thought he'd, he'd reference Seven. Who knows? But, like, it again, like, in both cases, it just imparts how close he is and how much he loves these creatures that he's with. And, obviously, they you can take different intentions from Mills versus Booth and their dogs and things like that. But then, then you get into it. Now we're down to business. Right, he snaps his fingers. Brandy's got to get up on the leather couch. She's got to wait. Well, there. first, I, you got to mention the treat through. that he brings home for her too. Oh, that's right. That's right. He brings her a big old bone. Yep. That's important yeah. because Some from it's butcher, before her. It's you know? pre-dinner. She's already eaten, and she's yes. still misbehaving mm-hmm. to him. Come on, Brandy. Yeah, yeah. This is true. She did get that bone. And you get, like, maybe the only dialogue in this sequence where, yeah, he says, like, wait till you see what I brought you. And then he starts making dinner. And then he also, when he admonishes her, you get some more dialogue. But that's about it. But we move into, like, this extremely tightly edited sequence about he's making macaroni for himself. He's getting a can of beer out of the fridge. And he's and he's preparing two cans of wet food and a an eyeballed amount of kibble uh, for Brandy to eat. Um, it's all insert shots. It's all millisecond by millisecond. I think correct choices made when you go to the next one. Um, it really, I think from, was Roma 2019 as well? Quaron's movie? Yeah. Or is that 2018? It might have been 2018, but so I saw it. I, like, I think it came it out was, more mainstream 2019. Yeah. It was, it was a banner year for edited dialogue lists, like just like one thought sequences. Cause the sequence where they park that American car in the, in the Mexican garage in, in, uh, it's one Roma of the best sequences I've ever felt seen. Like ever. It's incredible. And like this, I would say like the, these are the height of editing for a simple intention, right? Like I remember seeing this movie for the first time. And like, as the scene was going on, big old smile Me on too. my face, yeah. just because of the rhythm, just because of the feel. Right. And it wasn't like, oh, yeah, how great that dog is. Or I love this song or something like I think I had gotten primed properly by like when you realize like after the third shot of Cliff driving, you're like, oh, the point is that he's driving. This isn't like, of course, it's not filler. It's Tarantino. But like we're not leading to something. We're enjoying him driving because he's enjoying driving. And that kind of sets the stage for like feeding the dog sequence. There isn't going to be some big surprise incident at the height of this sequence. This is all just just enjoy this and who knows how it's going to I like I remember when I was watching I was like that may not have nothing to do with the rest of the movie and yeah. it, it deserves to be in there. And yeah. the glimpses we get of Cliff's personality really show that he's a hardened man who's like very tough, grizzled, mm-hmm. he's seen a lot of stuff. He's probably committed a lot of terrible acts. Yet his love for Rick, his love for his dog are what he wears on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. And it's so yeah. cool to see like such a a character with such a seemingly dark past just by himself independently love these moments with both Rick and his dog. Like you really yeah. get a I, I don't know. There's just so much to that. I think. You're a good friend, Cliff. I tried. Yeah, his in, his character's super interesting because they do they mention that he's a war hero. They have the whole, like, subplot about how he got away with murdering his wife, which is, like, I think Tarantino's not particularly graceful take on how cancellation has always been a part of the Hollywood industry and how 
cancellation yeah. has no true consequences for virtually everybody with the exception of like only the worst of the worst like Weinstein will never come back to the industry but like by and large so many people who have done so many notably terrible things continue to work and I do think it's like Tarantino being like isn't it funny that like what if we just say like everyone knows this guy killed his wife and he still gets jobs because he has a friend like Rick who's stumping on his behalf I don't think it's particularly, as I said, graceful or an effective commentary, but I do think that's what's going on there. Did you see that quote by Tarantino about his character? No, what did about, you say? Like, he, could, he could kill you with a spoon, a piece of paper, or a business card. Consequently, he is a rather zen dude who is troubled by very little. Yeah, there is like this sign like he is like the er stuntman. He can do anything physically, but generally he's like a good old boy who's just hanging out. Obviously, he makes by with like almost no money because he's eating mac and cheese and drinking beer. He's in a shitty trailer. Um, and, you know, there's a thing at the end of the movie where like they when they have to part ways and he won't have the job anymore. And the Kurt Russell's voiceover literally says like Cliff has no idea what he's going to do. But he's this Zen guy who came back for World War Two or korea i'm not actually sure i would assume world war ii um he was probably there in his, his early 20s and um you know can get pushed to the edge by people who infringe on whatever that code is you know um but otherwise right. you know yeah, he's, the code comes he's under control and he's, he's he's ready to go like brandy is uh but it's not until not until he chooses to that he will and like there is undeniable you know abject violence in this movie for we keep talking about how chill it is and how it's a good hang i don't want to deny that like yeah the last five minutes of this movie is just people screaming non-stop as they get brutalized by a dog and by like you know the 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 hearth of a fireplace and things like that um yeah yeah i don't regret, i know i have friends of mine who are there like i liked so much of that movie i don't think i can watch it again because the end stresses me out so much and i can't listen to that almost more you can't listen to it than you can't see it and i don't begrudge them at all it is intense no i think that's fair um um coming back to the relationship between man yeah. and dog though there's a couple other things that i wanted to point out um one of my favorite things that tarantino chooses to like show us and tell us subtly is that cliff leaves the tv on for mm -hmm. his dog while he's yeah. gone because when he comes in the dog's like you don't know that the dog's watching the tv but the mm -hmm. tv is on in yeah. the trailer when cliff comes home um the other thing is we talked about or you just mentioned that cliff might not be so well off but gets by he's eating a very simple mac and cheese and drinking like cheap yeah. beer He's but in great shape. He opens his cupboard same. and it's stocked <laughs> yeah. full of dog food. Raccoon flavored, skunk and flavored, I squirrel flavored. Did you see it's that? A, it's, a, yeah. it's a fun brand. I didn't see that until this most recent watch that all the dog food was flavored. Really strange yeah. flavors that I don't think exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they were marketed that way at once. Right. But like it does just kind of imply that like this dog can be a killer. Right. And like, I guess there's some alignment there between Cliff and the dog. Right. Like there's the dog. If you treat it right and you follow the rules, like it's it's a great companion. Right. It is like he says at the end of the movie, he says, you're a good buddy. And he says, I, I try, you know, and 
Brandy's trying too. She's doing her best, but uh, you get on their wrong side, and it is it is um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, bloody. It's messy. <laughs> Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to say about the scene, because you mentioned how good the editing is, and I think it is very tight. I don't understand necessarily why they needed to include all the inserts of nostalgic bits mm-hmm. of his apartment. I don't know the rationale for why they choose what why they chose to cut them in where they did. I don't dislike it. I just didn't see the reasoning for mm-hmm. it other than the celebration of nostalgia. And that is maybe my overarching criticism of the film yeah. is that there is some some points that I, I just didn't see why Tarantino needed to include it other than his love of that era. And that's okay. Yeah. But from a filmmaking perspective, usually I credit people or I credit filmmakers who every who incorporate intention in everything they show. And who will kill their darlings. Right. Like, yes, this is this is one of the ultimate examples of like director had final cut. Right. Because like there's, you know, there's sequences like this where I I agree you could cut out. There are some like when he enters the the um, the trailer, there are some just like shots of the accoutrement or like what's in the sink. You know, the the cast iron pan full of bacon grease, etc. That like is flavor text for Cliff's character, but none of which you would miss if you didn't have them in there. So this this scene could be edited further. Its rhythm is fantastic. Its its content is definitely like Tarantino being like, I want all this in there. Just like I want to do the sequence where Sharon Tate goes to a bookstore yeah. and buys a book, right? Which yeah. like is almost just showing off production design. It tells you almost nothing about her character, not nearly as much as her going to see herself in the movie. Um and I mean, like we, we talking about Matt Johnson at the beginning in that interview, he was talking about how, you know, as soon as you get above, like, I think he said 15 or 20 million, he's like, I want, I want to make sure people out there know that like when you accept a budget of that size, you no longer have final cut. You are the director. You might be the director writer and a studio is going to make the call on the final edit of your movie because it's their money. And he's like, that's yep. just how it goes. And that's where he gets uncomfortable with that stuff. Um, I love hearing unless, that from of course, him. Unless, of course, you are Quentin Tarantino or Christopher Nolan or David Fincher. I'm guessing Spielberg would get Final Cut. Spielberg, yeah. We're like, you have to be one of the top 10 filmmakers in the world or work for less than a $5 million budget if you want Final Cut. But you know what all those filmmakers have in common, though? They have really great relationships men? with their editors. Oh, they have great relationships with their editors and their and their men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I don't know. I, I wonder I wonder if Catherine Bigelow's had, had final cut or Lynn Ramsey. You know? Lynn Ramsey's budgets are smaller, so I could see. I would guess Lynn Ramsey would. Yeah. Because yeah. Bigelow is very had it specific. On, on point break. You know? Or zero. Probably not three. on point break. But I you know what? I would be surprised if they didn't like offer her pretty significant control of her work. Yeah. Because she's also so. like very very driven, very single minded, like has mm-hmm. a very clear vision. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I, and yeah. Tim and I are just kind of speculating on who actually gets final cut, but I really don't think it's, I think it's a very small group of filmmakers who work yeah. in any kind of significant budget sphere. Yeah. Um, it, it is worth noting Tarantino's first seven, no, six movies were edited by Sally Manke, who's mm-hmm. considered to be one of the best editors ever because of her work on his early films. 
Um, and when she died, I felt like a part of Tarantino's soul was kind of taken away from his films too. I think yeah. that they had tremendous chemistry as director editor. And that's usually something you can't see as clearly as it was when she edited his films versus uh, Fred Raskin, who who has edited Django, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot less concern with precision when it, Raskin's editing than when Manke mm-hmm. was editing. Um, and I don't think he, I don't think the tension is as good in these three films as it was in all of his earlier films that Manke uh, edit, edited. Yeah, Kill Bill is really like a real zenith of, of editing precision, especially in those fight sequences. But I mean, the tension it, built prior yeah. to every fight sequence is, is considerable too. And I'd say like Reservoir Dogs is a pretty master is a master class of editing yeah. too. Yeah. Low budget editing and uh, there's a reason direction it, it that, just sort of set it set the culture on fire when it came out. People yeah. were like, I've yeah. never seen anything like this. No way talks like this. No no movies feel like this. Even though yeah. very much he's just a product of the things he loved, um, which were TV western serials and you know movies he was going to see cost a nickel to see them and. You know, they never came out on VHS, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the the only other thing to say, for me to say about this thing is it's like, yeah, I think it's very important that they, this whole sequence has zero stakes so that when it's mirrored at the end, you understand all the function, but you add the stakes onto it. And it also implies that the Manson family are, uh, are, are dog food and also Nazis through the flamethrower connection as well. Um, so yeah, you can, you can tell uh, you can see how Tarantino pretty... feels about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good metaphoric relation there, Tim. I like that. Yeah. But uh, with that, um, I think uh, we'll move on yeah. to some shout outs. End if scene. Ready? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and Tay, uh, you you can go first. This once again, this keeps happening. I was like, I think this is my shout out, and then I look at our notes, and you've already picked it. Well, that's why I try and get on it ahead of you, man. It's, it's so good. When he calls yeah, him Dennis um, Hopper, it's I love it so much. Hey! Dennis Hopper! Well, that's exactly what we were talking about, right? That's like the yeah. whole Easy Rider. I was like, okay, I can make my point now. I got it. Old got Hollywood it. versus <laughs> new Hollywood. Hippies came up here to smoke dope on a dark road, huh? I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it literally is that. And um, I will say that this is the one weird error i've seen in the tarantino film that you can tell that his blender full of margarita is actually like something quite solid in there like mm. built up around the edges so to make it look full and doesn't yeah. slosh around because he's swinging it pretty like yeah. heavily and there's clearly like liquid at the bottom of it but all the sides mm. of the container are like i am actually just shocked that i could yeah. tell that that's a prop and not like so- real liquid in there yeah, and to explain, we're talking about when Rick Dalton chews out the Manson gang when they're in, they're parked in their car, um, planning to uh, planning to go attack Sharon Tate. And I just love DiCaprio in this moment. I I it's do so think funny. he is a a wonderful actor. I think he gets a little into it sometimes, and he can like overact or be over dramatic in some films. I really love him in this movie and like the, his level of um, restraint, I guess would mm. be like, and vulnerability in this character. I really think he, he really soaks that up, 
but in this moment he really lets it all out he's like all the anger that he his character has towards the shifting hollywood scene is yeah, he's yelling, comes out yelling in this at moment. the new era right yes and because they're making noise they're disrupting his scenic neighborhood well, yeah, he's right. It's and, from a point of class. Uh, it's like a bit of a class warfare yeah. thing, too, right? And like, I love that. Like, so they establish he and Cliff are so drunk they don't even drive home, which in 1969 is, I'm sure, that's a real statement, right? Um, and then they go back, and he makes a pitcher of margaritas at midnight, and then he hears this big beater of a car on his street, and he loses his mind. He's so drunk and so angry. He's paying all this money, all this property taxes. It's a private drive. And then he sees there's a bunch he's of worried about losing. long. Yeah, there's a bunch of long hair, greasy hair hippies. And he assumes that they're up there to find a quiet place to smoke their doobies. And he calls <laughs> like he's he's obviously he's the great part of this. But um, Austin Butler, I think, as the reaction sells it makes it even better okay okay stop yelling hold your horses we're leaving he's like genuinely like shocked (laughs) there are tears in his eyes he's got that thing where like like, when you're younger and like an adult is yelling at you and if you're not like well versed in yelling the stress and the the um the adrenaline just kind of makes your eyes well up like austin butler as tex mason is on the edge of like crying because this guy is calling yeah. him Dennis Hopper and telling him he's like, he's like, get this thing out of here. And he's like, he's like, all right, all right. I gotta, I gotta turn it around. He's like, back up. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's the girl's hand on the gun in the car, not Texas. It's, it's one, it's one of them. I actually, I don't remember from, from my memory. I think from she I puts her hand before. on the gun and it's surprising because it's not Tex who's supposed to be like the, tougher like from the yeah. spawn ranch scene he's the tough mm-hmm. one they call him he's the heavy yeah <laughs> and and he's getting just chewed out by rick dalton here it's <laughs> very funny and i think yeah. it's the maybe the funniest i've ever seen dicaprio in any movie i think it's it's him yeah. at his like finest form of comedy it's that or wolf of wall street yeah i mean that is you have to watch it with that context because some people yeah. don't see the humor in that movie at all which is troublesome Mm-hmm. yeah uh no i love this sequence so it makes me laugh every time and uh uh yeah the he calls him austin but or calls him austin butler he calls him dennis hopper and i just i lose it it's so funny um i like what so he calls when, the ginger girl too but i'm not allowed to yeah, say what we, that we is and i'm not gonna we put can't the put that on this episode <laughs> <laughs> and then i mean it's even better where they they drive down the hill and one of them's like hey that was jake cahill and they're all like kind of starstruck, even though they're all supposed to be like anti-industry people. And they're like, they're like, I had a lunchbox road, huh? with him on it. And then they come up with their new plan, changing the course of history because Rick Dalton was just so drunk and angry that he saved Sharon yep. Tate's life. Um, yep. So my, my shout out, uh, if I couldn't have picked that one, I do love uh, during in the very f- the second scene. um, when Rick Dalton is meeting with Al Pacino's um, Leo Schwartz, I can't remember his first name. Um, They're talking about the 14 fists. It doesn't matter. Yeah. They're talking about the 14 fists of McCluskey. And then you get like a flashback. Like they show you a sequence where he torches a bunch of Nazis. And there's one additional thing in there. And again, like maybe if you were an editor and, and Tarantino didn't have the sway he has, maybe you would edit it out. But I love that it's in there where, this Nazi high command is planning some attack and uh, McCluskey is behind this big curtain with a flamethrower listening in. And then one of the Germans says like, 
uh, you there, go open the curtain. We need more light. And, like, they have him react to that line. And he kind of, like, he kind of, like, you see, like, on his face, he's like, uh-oh, they're going to open it up, right? Like, I better get ready. And it's such a minor thing that doesn't have to be in there. And it's so it's real hammy. I think they're trying to get across, like, how kind of basic of an actor Rick Dalton can be when he's just, like, told, like, now react. They're about to they're about to unveil you, right? They're about to reveal your hiding spot. And I think it's super funny. And then he yells, who wants fried sauerkraut? And he torches him. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? <laughs> I'll link in the show notes. Corridor crew did a breakdown of that fire stunt and how they had to do it multiple times because, like, Leo didn't hit the right guy first, so he didn't catch fire. And then the second time was so intentional about hitting the correct guy that he like melted his uniform because he held it on him too long. And then I think they did it a third time and they got it right. But interesting background on fire stunts, which are still insane. Yeah, still one of the most dangerous things you can do in a film. And it was literally part of a film within a film in this movie. Yeah. And like his own little like remembering glorious bastards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very much that. Um, um what a picture. I call myself a cognac, mm. and I watch the 14 fists of McCluskey. What a picture. What a picture. Good, good picture, yeah. That is so much fun. What a picture. It's so, <laughs> so much fun. I love that sequence, too. Um, but we'll jump into our recommendations because mine lines up directly with my shout-out. I'm going to recommend Where Eagles Dare by Hutton in 1968. I think... In, in many ways, like 14 Fists and McCluskey was a reference to this little subgenre of, you know, you're two to three decades past World War Two, and they're still making just tons of like an American crack squad has to go kill a bunch of Nazis. And then Glorious Bastards is a part of that. McCluskey is a fake version of that. Uh, Where Eagles Dare stars Clint Eastwood, and it's a, a crack team of allied soldiers have to... Um, invade a Nazi stronghold in the Bavarian mountains to save a U.S. general played by um, Richard Burton. Um, it's like mm. one of my dad's favorite movies. It's like bloodless and clean. So like I watched it when I was like eight. It's just a lot of like Nazis have no sense of aim whatsoever. And Clint Eastwood like mows them all down with a machine gun, but there's never any blood. You know, there's nothing technically inappropriate, even though it's, you know, it's depicting war and and death. Um, but it's a solid old classic one. Uh, have you seen Where Eagles Dare? I have not. Yeah. It's I, I'm not that overly familiar with Clint Eastwood's filmography, to be honest. It's never and really struck a chord that, with me. This is also one where I forget he's in it, because like, I think when I think Clint Eastwood, I think about like his director era, right? Ah. Like, uh. Really more, way more. And like obviously like Dirty Harry and, and like the Westerns. But like other than that, then you're thinking about like, you know, Cry Macho, uh, Sully, you know, those great, those great movies. <laughs> um, and then my little, my little sneaky recommendation is also the podcast. You must remember this, uh, hosted by Karina Longworth. It's a Hollywood history podcast. It's, it's intensively researched. It's very informative. And they have like a 10 episode arc on the Manson family in Hollywood. When the trailer for once upon a time in Hollywood came out, someone recommended that I should listen to that season and get some of the context around the mansons in in hollywood and uh, it was very informative you find out about their connection with people like dennis wilson of the beach boys the people who lived in the house before sharon tate and roman polanski and why the manson family would have even been there 
uh, it's a great little arc, and they're like an hour a piece for the episode. So it's it's in terms of podcasts, it's not a huge amount of content. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, wow, that sounds really good. Yeah, and then Tay, your recommendation. I thought we had recommended this before, but I like we do. I did the check, and somehow you had. I checked. I checked, yeah. and uh, if you can call us out on our BS, like please do. I don't think we've recommended this one yet before, though. Um, I have twenty eighteen's so. David. Uh, I have twenty eighteen's Under the Silver Lake, directed by David Robert Mitchell, as my pick for the week, as my recommendation, because it is a very different depiction of Hollywood, and I think it's one of the most unique in the sense that it does not celebrate. Mm-hmm any of the pop culture of Hollywood. It, in fact, creates this mystery that is loosely kind of constructed around class class systems in that city, but is not explicitly tied to any figures of history or pop culture, and instead focuses on just, like, the weirdness of living in the shadow of Hollywood. And I think that that's a really cool way to create like your own story with the context of something that is familiar kind of being distorted around it. And I I think it's one of my most watchable like movies of the past few years as well. I I really like this one. Um, It's a really cool lead performance by Andrew Garfield. And I think the direction is just so um, bizarre and like at times off-putting that it's a unique movie that just struck a chord with me. Yeah, there's really nothing else like it. I find this movie difficult to parse and difficult to recommend, but you're right. It is kind of like, let's look at all the nobodies in a modern setting of Hollywood and all this stuff that you would never talk about, right? Um, it's. I think the direction is, like, fascinating. Um, I definitely have seen this movie more than once. I've fallen asleep in this movie, and I don't think it's because the movie's bad. It's pretty long. Um, and it, it has a weird, yeah. it has a weird energy level in pacing, but again, it's so pacing is all over the, all over the map. Yeah. You talk about cachet. So David Robert Mitchell made it follows one of the most successful and I think iconic modern horrors that aren't part of like the prestige horror. It's not like profitable too. S- yeah. Super profitable. Not a huge budget. Great sort of concept for low, low impact effects. But it's not a part of like the Eggers or Aster movement, I would say. No, he's his own. Um, he's his own thing, and I don't think his genre is horror. I think he kind of can touch anything he wants to. Uh, I know that he was given a tremendous well, and, like, to sense use of that cachet to do yeah. this movie. Yeah, to use that cachet to make Under the Silver Lake is I like. I respect it because that's a weird move, and I'd find this movie to be very difficult to sell. I can't imagine what the board meeting conversations were like around. What do we do with this? And like, thank God they got Andrew Garfield. At least they got a star that has some cachet around their name. I think Riley Keough um, is also. And unfortunately, a, a I don't. Gem. I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't think it did very well. No. Unfortunately, but people should definitely check it out. Yeah, it's cool to see a director take a big swing like this. Even though I'm guessing he would have known this wasn't going to be a major success. I don't think that was his intention. I think he used this cachet to f- finance a project that would never have been made otherwise, which is amazing mm-hmm. yeah but uh with that that's our episode on once upon a time in hollywood wrapping up our brad pitt month in which we didn't really talk about brad pitt that much but that's okay i mean he's like the uh, only we'll human character around. in our he's, scene today yeah yeah 
he's a lot he's in a lot of other movies um so we'll, we'll come back around to brad at some point uh thank you so much for listening check out indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark sometime in the next two weeks so you're nice and fresh on it for when we drop our episode and uh other than that you know um train your dog like take some time <laughs> make sure your dog's well trained it's an important step untrained dogs are are a danger to themselves and danger to everyone else and uh yeah you know try to be a good buddy once upon a time in hollywood what a picture <laughs> what a picture